Hey, this is Jackson with a note about today's podcast. It does involve a discussion of sex as related to some cultural issues. So if children are around, you may want to preview this before they would hear it. We're back in Pirates of the Future talking about sex today. Yes, sir. And not only that, talking about, I mean, some just calm everyday topics. Uh, the title of chapter four in this book is Sexualizing psychology and politicizing sex. Yeah. Which are two of my favorite things to do. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you have got to, for everyone listening, I had no idea that the intro was going to be that. And so, Jackson, you've got to give me a heads up when you're going <laughs> to give an intro like that. I feel right now like I'm giving an intro like you would have given. Yeah, an probably. Intro. You have to uh, understand, I'm a guy with a very. Uh, inadequate filter, and so you just put me in an opportunity to get myself in trouble if I were not careful. So, uh-huh. thanks, but it's you, all good. You know, believe it or not, I know that about you. Yeah, and so yeah, uh, I just have that feeling. Yeah, when so, I'm around you, that I just want to, I want to prod you and see what happens. You want to get me in trouble? Yeah, man. Yeah. So, so tell me about how you enjoy sexualizing psychology, <laughs> Jackson. Um, it's a funny uh, follow. You know, from what we, we've been talking about, expressive individualism, which in itself, I, I don't know that that sounds too controversial. Um, but as we're getting towards the ground on kind of the, the moving uh, parts of what we are going to be talking about, um, we're getting to this, to where it's like, okay. Uh, I mean, he starts off the chapter, and I think it's a really funny way. Uh, so obviously, if you haven't listened to the last two um, episodes of the podcast, I would encourage you to, because we're in the middle of Carl Truman's book. Um, which is Strange New World is what it's called. And he starts this chapter saying, uh, isn't it odd that we need to know uh, about the sexual habits of, say, professional athletes uh, and actors and actresses, uh, maybe politicians, other public figures? And I think, yes, it is. Uh, I appreciate him calling attention to it. Uh, because yeah. you you have so much of it, you're told so much that you you could kind of go, yeah. Why why do I need to know this uh, exactly? Yeah, that's exactly right. When you think about just just think about like um, politicians or uh, actors and actresses or athletes, and you know most of us do, or at least you know some of them maybe haven't said, but by and large. You know which ones are gay, which ones are not, which ones are trans, which ones are, are this or that. Right. Um, and kind of reading this, it made me stop and think, yeah, why on earth do I know that? Why does right. that have any effect on um, me watching this person act or play baseball or whatever? But, that, yeah, that it is the case. Right. And he's going to move to ask the question, is sex the primary category that determines our identity? And uh, to answer the question, why have we gotten to the point to where a lot of people would say, well, obviously it is. And is it obvious? Um, So, you know, for instance, in ancient Greece, uh, sex was regarded as something that human beings did. Today it is considered to be something vital to who human beings are. Not only is it vital, it is often kind of characterized as the most vital. Yeah. the most fundamental, and is that warranted? How do we get to the point where that 
is the case. Um, and and I, I guess it's a similar answer to uh, why do we why do we need to know these things? Uh, why does it have to be uh, considered that way? I mean, I, I don't think that it does, um, but it's certainly something that we see a lot of, that it's just, no, 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 this is the fundamental characteristic. And so we're going to answer the question, or attempt to answer the question of how we got here as far as that being central uh, to identity. And then really I hope to ask just some hard questions like, okay, but should it and what are the consequences if we make that the absolutely defining element of our identity what does that do yeah that's right yeah um so who do you think did it sigmund freud uh, <laughs> is our prime actor on this stage um and i i w will say before this chapter the ideas that i was more familiar with about freud are probably the ones that most people are familiar with about kind of id and ego and superego um, and, and these sorts of things, these are certainly in the um, collective consciousness. People talk about people's ego. Uh, they talk about people who have a big ego and, and what that might be caused from. But um, the ideas we see here from Freud are really powerful. Um, and one of the strangest things about Freud is if you were to go to, um, say, uh, any of, say, for instance, the college campuses here in Evansville or wherever you may be, I could virtually guarantee you that Freud is not the most popular psychological figure. Um, his, his theories are just uh, widely very few people uh, who are into psychology are Freudian, are really driven by his fundamental theories. Um, but meanwhile, a lot of his ideas are popular. Mm -hmm. um, have you experienced that at all? You spent a, quite a bit of time on USI's campus. Um, yeah, but not necessarily talking about uh, Sigmund Freud. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I guess. Yeah, I haven't seen a lot of uh, Freud T-shirts being worn around <laughs> USI. So yeah, not many fans of Freud there. But um, yeah, I, I think you're probably right. It's funny though because whenever I think of Freud, I don't think of the uh, ego and and id and the other things that you said um i think of actually so uh did you ever watch the tv show mash yeah yeah so so on that tv show they had a psychologist uh, or psychiatrist whatever he was that was on the show every now and then that they'd bring in for certain episodes to deal with certain uh guys with certain issues and things and he was very freudian he talked about freud a lot i mean right. all the time right and largely when he was talking about Freud, it had to do with sex. You know, he mm -hmm. would say things like, well, Freud says, you know, right. all, all, everything is sex, yep. you know, and, and sex defines and regulates everything, that kind of stuff, which gets more at what, um, um, what Carl Truman in this book, when he brings up Freud, what he's getting at is these kinds of ideas of, of Sigmund Freud and kind of his emphasis on human sexuality. Right. So, Yeah. Uh, to, to answer your question, no, I, I don't think there's a ton of Freud fans uh, on USI's campus anymore. And, and this is a, a funny thing about pop culture in general is usually by the time something gets to pop culture and it's sort of imitating uh, life, it is behind the time so that in the 80s when MASH was popular, um, Freud was probably not even then uh, popular in academia. Yeah, it was probably uh, Carl Jung or one of the later... Um, philosophical thinkers. Um, but when ideas get out to the popular level, uh, they tend to stay around until some other idea uh, unseats them. And most of the time, this isn't even in a search for truth. It's more than in just a search for popularity or usefulness. Um, yeah. But 
the two ideas that uh, we start with here, um, you know, things like the Oedipus complex is an idea for it is not popular at all, widely discredited. Um, his idea is that uh, that sort of sex is driving every stage of human development, pretty widely questioned. But um, his notion uh, that sex is foundational to human happiness is probably the idea that still has the most traction. Mm -hmm. And by foundational, uh, that means primary foundation, yeah. the main foundation. Yeah. Uh, so that's the big idea number one of today is that, uh, according to Freud, uh, sex here, uh, pursuing whatever sexual desire you have as being foundational to human happiness, that is, that is a prime Freudian idea and one that a lot of people have bought. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, I don't know, because I'm, again, not, not into this stuff that much, but uh, are you familiar at all with, uh, I think it's Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs? Maslow. Maslow's Abraham Maslow. Hierarchy. Yeah. Um, whenever I learned about that in, in some of my classes in college, what struck me as interesting was that in a lot of the versions of it that you see, now not all of them, but some of them, so I guess kind of depending on, I guess, who is designing the chart, who's designating these things, he, he lays out like, okay, what is basic to human survival? And he has at the bottom of the pyramid uh, things like food, water, yep. shelter, things like that. Yep. Uh, and then above that, things like, you know, human relationships, this and that. And above that, um, you know, fulfillment uh, in your job, careers, kind of whatever you're doing. Um, but in many of those uh, diagrams of this pyramid, this hierarchy of needs, you will see at the base level as in necessary for basic human survival and development you will see included in their sex mm -hmm. which i so many people just don't question mm -hmm. and they think well yeah well without sex you would not be able to function normally it yeah. is as basic to most people in their minds as shelter and food and water yeah and I, that just goes unquestioned almost. Sure. It's, I wonder, um, things like pyramids like this are, uh, challenging because what are you communicating by the fact that you're putting it there, uh, you know, alongside, uh, I mean, one thing about it is, is that, uh, sexual desire is an appetite in part. Sexual desire is tied to the body and you're trying to make sense of that. Um, but then, you know, for instance, in Maslow's hierarchy, self-actualization, uh, becoming, what you desire to be is sort of at the top of that. Um, but wherever you are putting sex, uh, for Freud, it was clear that one, sex is foundational to human happiness, and two, uh, he saw human civilization as rooted in oppression and in uh, curbing your ability to do what you desire to do sexually, mm -hmm. and that that is a big problem. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, the big question that we're looking at today is really what is human happiness? Yeah. Uh, and that's an important question, but lest we think that we have somehow solved it, uh, that either Freud solved it or that we how somehow have just gone like, Oh, we now know what it is. Um, man, we are not getting there. Uh, as far as uh, wherever anybody thinks we might've landed, um, Modern man is not just got the happy mach happiness machine worked out so that we just achieve it all the time. In fact, uh, strangely, um, though 
for thousands of years, a lot of people said, you know, what I'd just like to have is regular food <laughs> and water and survival. Like, well, we've had those things in general in, uh, in the West for a while. And hard measures of happiness um, are not strong. Uh, so, for instance, um, if you look into this, suicide rates uh, have increased in the last uh, 50 years. And that's a concern. Um, this is a very reasonable measure of happiness. If you don't want to keep going, you're not happy. Mm -hmm. And that's a, a serious concern yeah. uh, and one that, that we are facing now. People lack purpose and fulfillment. Um, and we'll examine this. I, I, I'm surprised, uh, honestly, that something this simple and straightforward, this, this idea number one that, well, sex is the number one key to human happiness. It's like, well, have you ever, have you never met somebody who is having sex but was also unhappy? Because there's those people. Mm -hmm. They exist. Um, yeah. So that's, uh, that's strange, but it's there. Yeah. You know, I would take a step further and say that today's day and age of the culture here in the United States, in the West, has never been a less sexually repressed um, situation than we have right now. Like, there has I, never been so much... Um, like at liberty, I guess you might call it, sexually, um, no one has ever been more sexually liberated than the culture that we live in today. And yet, as you just said, and it's true, depression has done nothing but go up. Mm -hmm. So the opposite, I would argue, of what Freud has said is, has been demonstrated to be true, that the more sexual expression is fostered, embraced, celebrated, and, and you know, lived out, the happier you'll be. I'd say no. The opposite has been demonstrated to be true. That the less the less sexual restraint there is, the less happiness there is. And I say that you know we can talk about causation versus correlation, and I'm not trying to say there's one or the other, but I'm saying Sigmund Freud is wrong in saying that less sexual repression will lead to more happiness. That's clearly been demonstrated to not be the case. We're we're seeing that right now. So I, I mean, what? Clearly, what would be stated is, well, we're not free of repression yet. This is what people would say to you. And here, here's the, uh, there's a gamble that's being sought right now, which is basically this. If only we went out and just told everyone, do whatever you want to do sexually. And not only, not only will nobody bother you, we're all going to cheer you on and celebrate what you're doing. That is the gamble. That is, that is the statement that like, well, that, that would make for uh, happy people. And, and I, uh, here's the strange thing about that. Um, that is an unquestioned notion and one that, that I mean, uh, Carl Truman talks about how um, what Freud said in his time, uh, I know actually he refers to Rousseau that, that Rousseau said, well, obviously, if a 14-year-old boy was trying to <laughs> get sexually involved with a three-year-old girl, then that obviously would show that he is uh, immature and should seek to be involved with someone his own age. And it's like, oh, no, 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 hold on. If you're going to let this cat out of the bag, uh, this, this cat is going to come completely out of the bag, which is if there's no rules, there are no rules. And yeah. 
uh, we have already moved. I mean, all evidence in the past 50, 60 years, we've, we've moved to fewer and fewer restrictions. And all that happens is people say, I would like even fewer restrictions. Why are you restricting me? You are hindering me. You are repressing me. And it makes me angry that you're repressing me. Um, and so that, that is, uh, the opinion that is, that is what's being said. And I just don't think it, it bears out. And then the other thing to say about that is if you open all of these gates, um, there have been plenty of societies in the past who have lived in complete chaos. Um, I would like to point again, as we have a habit of doing in discussing this book is if you want to look at, um, societies who have lived in anarchy and chaos, they are there in the old Testament. There's a, re a reason why you find all of the, what are to us, I would hope, uh, strange sort of sexual comments in Levitical laws and those sorts of things in the Old Testament. Don't have sex with an animal. Don't have sex with your aunt. Don't have sex with your mother. Why do you have to say that? Because there were societies and peoples who were practicing that, which the Israelites then were either tempted or did pick up on, and they had to be told no, that's not how this mm -hmm. is done. And this stuff has existed, mm -hmm. thankfully. Uh, we are not encouraging this right now, but I'm concerned that we might see people encouraging these sorts of behaviors as time goes on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you, you come up to this interesting point of, okay, well, um, then is it not best uh, to do away with all sexual restraint? Uh, and what Freud kind of says is he kind of says, well— not necessarily, not if you want to maintain civilization. So he kind of argues <laughs> yeah. uh, this point of like, okay, civilization uh, is only able to be maintained if you have some uh, sexual moral codes, if you had some restrictions on some of these things. So it's a trade-off, you know. You can have, you know, better or more intact civilization, uh, but you're less happy because yeah. you're more repressed sexually. Or right. you can be less repressed sexually, but that's going to have consequences uh, and effects on civilization, and you're going to be lacking there. Right. And it's kind of like, well, that's a really frustrating spot to put everybody in, isn't it? <laughs> right, and and that's something, uh, what you're saying is a really important point about Freud, that is, he doesn't have a sunny view of uh, human nature. No. His, his view of human nature is basically, well, we want to do things that people would not like, but it's just a fact. We want to do yeah. them, and so figure out if you're going to do it, and then deal with the fact that people won't like it. Yeah. Um, and that's that's key because one of the things that happens is we pick up ideas from certain people and then we combine them with ideas from other people, which create the problems that we find ourselves in. Um, so that's where we're going. I do want to mention um, that even in, uh, I mean, what you could call like pagan history, uh, there are various ideas about what would make people happy. And uh, for instance, and way back in the history of philosophy, you have a, a, a fellow named Aristotle who says, uh, actually what would make people happy is virtue. This is a pre-Christian pagan who had lived in the world of chaos and uh, through dealings, through being taught by Plato, who was taught by Socrates, had gained some wisdom. Uh, this is in ancient Greece, which is a civilization that had uh, homosexuality in general, who, who had basically male-dominated sexual hierarchies where um, men did whatever they felt like doing. Uh, and, and so there were not... Uh, the reason that they didn't have what we call uh, sexual orientations is they didn't think this way. They just kind of went, look, I just sex is just a thing that I do. 
Yeah. And I don't, it doesn't make any difference. They, they, uh, their moral structure is, is very different. But Aristotle himself said, oh no, happiness is, is virtue. And now before we import, you know, whatever ideas, uh, virtue is a very uh, pregnant and involved concept. Uh, to the ancient Greeks, virtue meant manliness. It meant, what's a real, strong, human, man like and after asking and dealing with a lot of different questions uh, about that and seeing a lot of men in different situations, um, look, one of the ways they tested manliness is on the field of battle. Yeah. And uh, there, are, there are strong tests for manliness uh, in the field of battle. And so uh, virtue is what they came to mean by uh, what would attain to happiness. And for instance, courage would be a virtue, a person who can control their fears in a very dangerous situation and manage to act in, in ways that might benefit them. That's one of the virtues that they would uh, classify, and they would say that leads to happiness. And so that's, that's worth thinking about in a pre-Christian society. And, and as anybody who uh, went through a Western civilization course uh, knows, uh, our civilization owes in part our history to ancient Greece and then Rome. Um, and so that would have been Aristotle's answer, a Christian answer to what, what is foundational to human happiness would be a life that glorifies God. Mm-hmm. Because we are in the Western tradition here, a guy like Thomas Jefferson would say something that we're all familiar with. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is what we have here. Keep in mind that originally that said the pursuit of property because attaining property means a very solid financial foundation. Um, but... He wanted to make it a little more poetic and seeming like a little higher goal than just property. Um, So life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But the strange place that we're going to is that a lot of people view um, happiness as completely subjective. It's just like, I don't know, it's it's, it's just really mysterious that anybody, what makes you happy might not make another person happy. And um, it's it's very strange uh, because I don't know if people really think that it's just like completely subjective as if, you know, hey, you know, having ice cream every day might make you happy, but a punch in the face might make another guy happy every day. I don't know <laughs> if they think it's completely obje- uh, subjective, yeah. um, but uh, I think to, to a lot of people, it is sort of unexamined. Yeah, that's that's a part of the, the discussion that needs to be had is what, you know, all these guys are saying, these philosophers at this at this point in the game anyway, are everything is revolving around happiness. What's going to lead to more happiness? Mm-hmm. And that is the ultimate goal. So if, if human beings are becoming more happy, then that is what we ought to attain. We ought to attain pursuing happiness. Mm-hmm. To, guess, there, wasn't there a movie, like a Will Smith movie called Pursuing Pursuit Happiness? Pursuit of Happiness. Yeah. Not there, spelled right. Yeah. 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 That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That always bothered me. Yeah. But, uh, and I think in that, in that movie, kind of what you see, um, if I remember, I think I've seen it, but I, I think I remember, but this guy comes out of like poverty, right? And is homeless for a while and um, has a son and, and ultimately his pursuit of happiness. And I guess the, the understanding would be he began to achieve happiness when he got this big job at this uh, fancy, I think like a, a stock market or stock exchange kind of gig or something or another. I, I don't remember exactly, but um, but. What we see in all of these kinds of ideas of, of pursuing happiness as the ultimate goal, goal for human beings, the question ought to be asked, okay, are we sure that happiness is the ultimate goal? And if so, what do we mean by happiness? Yeah. Because like you said, it is subjective. And we as Christians oftentimes will talk about the difference between happiness and joy. Right. And uh, sometimes the waters can get muddy there. It's kind of like, well, they, they sound like synonyms. Even when you describe them, they kind of sound like synonyms. Right. So you could say 
um, maybe happiness versus uh, satisfaction mm-hmm. or contentment or mm-hmm. things like that. All of these things that are rolled up within uh, kind of, I think, a, a, man, a properly ordered life uh, and one that is lived to the fullest. And when you begin to add in all these other factors, or factors, okay, not just happiness right now, because there are many things that can give you happiness right now that will leave you ultimately unfulfilled, yeah. uh, will leave you very discontent. Um, and that needs to be entered in the equation. It doesn't seem to be a, become a factor for them at all. Uh, and with this notion of you know, human happiness and particularly to be found in sex, which is, as he Freud would say, is like the highest pinnacle of human happiness it becomes like the standard um it is your life is going to be constantly wrapped up in seeking that happiness high right um and i think like any drug it's going to take more and more and more to get you to that point of being happy right um and and eventually you're going to be ultimately left with a, a life of nothing but discontentment and sorrow and despair and um yeah, I think that's just a really bad way to live. And but these discussions of happiness aren't aren't questioned too much by Freud. He just says, I don't know, happiness. That's the goal. Yeah. Period. Yeah, and um, we got four big Freud ideas. Number three is this: that basically happiness is plenty of pleasure and as little pain as possible. Our, our goal is lots of pleasure and very little pain and and so you can see then the way that he arrives at his conclusions are pretty straightforward so if okay if happiness is plenty of physical pleasure what's the greatest physical pleasure sex he says and so okay then what do we do well we ought to pursue as much sex as as we we can Mm -hmm. and attain it um and that's what he said and this idea is then and it has that been sold to us in commercial sitcom soap operas movies pornography uh, even counseling there is uh, sex counseling uh, try to help you try to figure out how to have a better sex life mm-hmm. uh, medication if you if you are not even able to have sex well let's get you some medication to make sure yeah. you want to have sex more and that you can possibly attain to that more but this dodges questions of fulfillment yeah. even questions of purpose and and the question of what if there's more to it than just pleasure and pain? Mm-hmm. Um, he lives in that enlightenment tradition of seeking pleasure and avoiding pain being the highest ends, but he doesn't move towards more than that. And so, look, uh, we are not a people who are against pleasure, and we don't just desire, you know, it's not as if we just desire pain and we're not just going like all right wish we had more pain but look we just believe there are higher things than pleasure yeah that there 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 are greater purposes to life than just asking of our our whole life well what would give me pleasure and what would promote less pain yeah uh and and so that's one of the strange things because this seems to me just a description of fun or of base pleasures yeah and that's not this is something that you could uh, you could sell to like a, a four-year-old. Yeah. Uh, but I, I would hope that we could get more sophisticated than this because it looks like there's more to life than this. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean it sounds a lot like, if not full-blown, at least the, uh, the roots of hedonism right here um, when you see this. And think about all of the 
Um, all of the virtues, all of the qualities that are thrown out with this. Okay, let's just put away with the bad and in with pleasure. Away yeah. with pain, in with pleasure. And and by pain, I would think he would also include anything discomfort or right. or disliking or undesirable to us. Um, all of the virtues and things that are cast aside here, virtues such as duty and commitment, um, things that, man, most people around us would see universally as good uh, in most contexts. Now we see as irrelevant mm-hmm. if we accept this this prescription. And he's right. You know, this we when we when I say he, I mean um, Carl Truman, the writer of the book *Strange New World*. He says that we're just sold this in every area of life: commercial sitcoms, soap operas, movies, etc. Um, you know, even like the rise in things like uh, like sex therapy and and all of these kinds of things. These are booming businesses right now, and it's just so inundating to us to the point. I was so here's one of the things I've been doing with this book is I'll read it, but I'll also as like I read, um, I'll also listen to it on audio. So mm-hmm. I might read the chapter and then listen to it on audio to really help it kind of sink in. As I was listening to this portion of this chapter, and he talked about how, yeah, it's just it's all around us being sold to us. It's become just everyone is using this you know idea of. Pleasure, happiness being supreme, and and most pleasure and happiness coming through sex, and using that to sell to us. And literally, as I'm in my car, and he's talking about how it's just being sold to us everywhere. A great big truck drives in front of me with an advertisement on the side for some sort of alcoholic drink, and the title of the drink, and it's written all over the bottles, all over the side of the thing, is kinky. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wow, that, that's perfect right. example. Right. Like perfect literally, example. as I'm sitting there right. driving. Uh, here's an example of what he's saying, like that we, we would name beverages kinky. Right. Yeah. It just, yeah. And I would love to know from anyone listening to this, how long from the moment you're hearing this until you see your next advertisement that either is about sex or leverages sex for something else. Yeah. Cause it won't be long. It won't. It won't be long. So just look at the trucks around you if you're listening to this in your car. You will probably <laughs> there see you go. But keep your eyes on the road, people. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> And so, uh, I mean, if, if happiness is synonymous with sex, then we're all Freudians. Uh, but what if it's more? I mean, if, if happiness is just, uh, okay, a, a quotient uh, of whatever sex is in your life, uh, then we're all Freudians. But what if there is more to it than that? And uh, I hope there is, because I, I, I have had a strong sense that there is. And honestly, even, uh, you know, look, as a young man, you have a very strong sex drive. But even when I was young and at, say, the strongest sex drive I had, I had suspicions that there was more to life than sex. And I hope that other people do too. It's just, this has just been a little strange to me because it's like, well, look, the sex, your sex drive can be a very strong force, but is that it? Is that all there is? Um, Because... No. Right. And I, I, it's just strange to me that... um, this just seems fishy to me because it's like, I think there's more to life than, than this. Um, but l- listen, Freud's not done because here's the big idea from Freud number four. Uh, and it is this, all sexual restraint imposed by society should be thrown off. All sexual restraint imposed by society should be thrown off. He, cr- he claims that restrictions on sex are simply feelings of disgust max, uh, masked as positive rules. So that basically he says, when people are trying to get you to not do whatever you feel like doing sexually, that's just something that they feel they feel what you're doing is improper, disgusting. 
and, and that's just their sensibilities. So you need to throw off their sensibilities, trust your sensibilities and do what you feel like doing. Mm-hmm. And then whatever the consequences are, well, that's, that's, those are the consequences of being an individual doing what they want. Now this, I didn't know that this was the Freudian position and, um, this is sort of next level, uh, foolish to me, mm-hmm. uh, because this is, this is like unmasked anarchy. I mean, yeah. this is, this is, um, okay. There's no way, uh, for this society to function. This looks like a bad place to yeah. be. Um, but nonetheless, uh, this is what he's saying. He sees civilization or culture as the simple trade-offs of the limitings of desires so that social arrangements are consistent and steady. And, and this is his analysis. So he has a work called Civilization and Its Discontents. And he says, I mean, he's going further. He says, look, all of art and music and sports and religion and all this, these are just ways of redirecting the sex instinct. Mm-hmm. We want sex and we play at it in all these other areas and in these other arenas since we can't do what we really want, which is have indiscriminate sex However, we want to do it as much as we can. Didn't know that about yourself, did you? Well, every time you're strumming that guitar, that's all you're really doing. Isn't is that something? Trying to make up, yeah. I think that's just so silly, you know. And and um, I certainly I love sports. Uh, I enjoy certain kinds of of art and music. And uh, obviously, I am a member of a religion. Um, and the idea that this is the the everything is sex kind of idea of it. All of that. Now, that is just you trying to make up for the fact that you can't have all of the uh, sexual activity in the various ways that you want. And yeah. it's, well, that comes as news to me. You know, I just thought I enjoyed playing disc golf or shooting a basketball. Nope. It's more than that. Right. More than that. Right. Um, and before we move to how sex becomes political, um, one, this has gotten very far this idea that uh well it's just oppression and that you'd be better off just doing whatever you feel because instead of describing behaviors as wrong um we have come to just des- to describe those who would say certain behaviors is wrong as uh well you're being offensive if you say that i shouldn't do a certain thing sexually though that's offensive to me or that's hurtful to me um and you're making me feel unsafe uh, and morality has been replaced uh, with this language, this therapeutic language that, well, uh, I, you should make me feel good about myself uh, rather than limiting me. This, the strange thing about this is this just does not account for human behavior. For instance, um, one thing that you and I are uh, kind of at the base level involved in is endurance sports. Yeah. And endurance sports are interesting. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a unique group of people you meet when you go to any of these endurance events. We have some friends who are more into it uh, than we are. Um, but any endurance event is basically just about pushing yourself and seeing how hard you can push yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, So, for instance, you run a half marathon and you see how fast you can run 13 miles. Mm-hmm. I, I would love to hear a Freudian explanation of why you're trying to do this. But look... Uh, it seems to me this is about uh, trying something hard for the purpose of discipline to uh, to make yourself stronger. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is about 
this is about testing yourself. Mm-hmm. It's about, um, well, it, it's also about knowing that your body was made for activity. So give it activity mm-hmm. to do that's, that's good for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It kind of flies in the face of his idea that, uh, to, to truly be happy is to, uh, get as much pleasure as possible while putting off all pain or as much pain as possible. Um, it kind of sets that on its head, right? Because as you and I both know, <laughs> running 13 miles brings on pain. And right. you, you take that on when you accept that that run. And, and guess what? You could quit at any time. Right. No one is there forcing you to run the race. In fact, you could right. quit, go up to the finish line, still get your medal. <laughs> right. You know, if that's what you're in it for. Um, but you, you don't. And Here's what's what's amazing is I remember when I ran, ran my very first half marathon. Um, you were there. Uh, you were just way ahead of me, but you were there. And uh, I finished, and I said right after I finished, never doing that again. Where, yeah. Absolutely <laughs> never going to do that again. That was miserable. Yeah, everybody has at least one like that. <laughs> yeah, it was my first one, and, and I was miserable. I laid there, and you were like, no, 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 you need to get up and walk. And I'm like, nope, I'm, I'm laying right here. I'm not doing anything else. Um but literally, and this is not an exaggeration, by the end of that day, that evening, I was saying, mm-hmm. yeah, I'll probably do that again. I'll, I'll probably run it next year. You yeah. know, because even through that pain and because of that pain, seeing you, the ability to push yourself to do something, do hard things, do things that maybe cause you pain, depending on what those things are, can actually be a great means to a sort of happiness, right. joy, satisfaction, whatever kind of things you want to call it. Yep. Um, it is. And those who never push themselves, who never embrace pain of growth or challenge, um, or even just denying yourself certain pleasure for a certain time for certain reasons, actually never experience the greatest amount of, of joy that is available for us. Right. You know, one of the curious things you and I have both talked about, uh, related to this that I think is pretty easily understandable, um, because we've all had these experiences is how powerful it is an experience to suffer with other people mm-hmm. and what a bond it creates for you mm-hmm. because we're not sitting here saying that there's nothing enjoyable about these experiences there is such a thing as yeah. a runner's high just as there is enjoyment in any of these types of activities it is a mixed enjoyment mm-hmm. um but one thing that i think is easily understandable is this community element and and people can look back i mean a lot of people um, might notice this about say uh, high school that you can think back there's a lot of things you wouldn't do again about high school but you are struggling along with other people and there is something about that that is good for you yeah i mean you could people could think of this about working at a hard job uh you don't have to look at it and go yeah i just loved lifting 50 pound bags of uh, dog food all day long (laughs) but if you're doing it with other people there is a camaraderie that forms yeah. and and all this is just to say human experience is more complex than this yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> that, that that look uh you and i are both going to sit here and say well one thing i think that we should say is look i'm for sex i'm thankful to be married because one i think god gave us the proper context for marriage amen and you should have sex if you are married in the sight of god and um, we we're Christians. We believe sex is uh, for a man and a woman within marriage. Well, then that's the context that it is meant to be enjoyed in. And so enjoy it. And by the way, sociologically, people who are married have more sex than people who are not married, period. Um, and in every survey you look at, they 
report that. Mm-hmm. Now, now, yes, there are people out there. Th- there are people out there who are having plenty of sex as a sort of single, unattached person. That is not the norm. But even if you talk to those people, most of those people will freely tell you, oh, sex does not equal fulfillment, nor does sex solve all my problems, nor has it just made me happy. If I can go to a bar every Friday night and, and have, end up having sex with someone, that, is, that is not, does not equal to just a happy life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just a more complicated question. This is just to say, this is a more complicated question than what we've seen here so far. That's exactly right. So, so two of the things that you just said there that I kind of want to build on is the first thing you were saying that, um, yeah, human beings are more complex. What we're not saying is obviously, as you have said, um, you know, we talk about, okay, you can get to a place of pleasure, enjoyment, um, even through pain sometimes. And as we talked about through like running, um, what we are not proposing is that sex isn't the means to happiness running is or pain is okay (laughs) yeah that's not what we're that's not what we're trying to get at here uh what we're saying though is that at the very least kind of at the base level there is something other than sex that can bring about joy happiness fulfillment um but the answer is not simply take on running or take on pain um what, what we would ultimately say is as a demonstration of that sex isn't all there is there are these other things but ultimately, what we would say is none of these things, running, sex, um, whatever the case may be, disc golf, art, music, none of those things can bring true fulfillment. Right. And they are all just whenever they are – when you're seeking your fulfillment in those things, you are engaging in idolatry. Yeah. Your idol, you're worshiping an idol. That idol for Freud was sex. Uh, that idol for you might be – um, running, it might be sure. uh, your physical fitness, it might be um, video games, it could be a whole host of other things. Mm-hmm. But when you are trying to seek your fulfillment, your happiness, your satisfaction in anything other than Christ, right. uh, you will ultimately be let down. It's not just sex, uh, and, and running is not the answer to sex, period. And the second thing you said, sex is a good thing. Right. We are not here proposing right. that sex right. is evil. God created sex, and he created it to be enjoyed within its proper context, which is between a husband and wife in marriage, uh, committed to one another in that way. And it's a good thing. Like you said, I, too, enjoy sex. Can I get an amen? Amen. <laughs> amen. Uh, I enjoy it, and I enjoy it with my wife, and I enjoy the intimacy that it brings between she and I, even though it is a challenge at times. Um, it is not all that the... Um, I don't know, media industry would like to make sure. it out to be, sure. uh, but it is a beautiful and a great and enjoyable thing. Um, and so don't hear us saying here that sex is a bad thing. No, sex is a good thing created right. by God for its proper use. Uh, but the problem comes whenever you begin to idolize it, as I said. And, and th- this is exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. Uh, he says, therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Mm-hmm. This is the problem when we begin to worship created things, whether that be people or the good gifts that God has given us rather than the giver of those good gifts. We will always be let down. And, and sex is a gift given to us by God right. for a purpose. 
but the purpose is not for our fulfillment and our uh, utter satisfaction. Mm-hmm. It is that is not it. Right. I mean, yeah, we should seek our fulfillment in God. Uh, you know, we all have uh, this this trend towards trying to emphasize certain things in our lives more than they should be, and it ruins them. Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, unfortunately, it's not something we grow out of. I mean, I have a, a six-year-old son right now who, if you would let him, I mean, he, he's discovered Mike and Ike's, and he <laughs> loves Mike and Ike's. He would eat them every meal right now. Well, that's not the answer. Uh, uh, but we do that with any number of things. And, and, and I think we're most of us aware that if you were to eat Mike and Ike's for even, you know, like, try to cover those for like six meals like two days that would be that would be a bad idea yeah. uh, but meanwhile i tell you i i, I know a young man who <laughs> would like to give it a <laughs> who shot would love to give it a <laughs> shot um so so that's there but let's let's move to talk about uh sort of how this is added to a different movement and how sex becomes political yeah. so sex has always been political in one sense you know looks uh Sexual codes in the past have served to protect families and relationships among extended families from the possible chaos that comes with the sexual impulse. The thing about your desires is they're unpredictable. And societies have always found ways. If you, if you are an anthropologist at all, if you've ever read anthropological works, or if you've spent any time looking at cultures from around the world, all cultures have ways of restraining, guiding, and answering the sex impulse. Why do you think that is? Because it's a really strong impulse. And if you let it just have its way, it will do exactly what Freud expects here. Uh, You will have, well, you will have strong, in in particular, you'll have strong males who take sex, wherever they can get it, uh, and that will create certain problems, which is why in every culture you have ways that sex is restrained. If you were to go into, uh, deep into, say, uh, the Amazon rainforest or into cultures that are fairly untouched by uh, societies that we are familiar with, you would find sexual restraint Mm -hmm. Because you can't allow it to be unrestrained. Mm-hmm. Now, however, uh, some would disagree with this. Uh, sex and politics have come to be tied together more now than ever. We ever we often hear about uh, sexual orientation uh, and sexual orientation and the validity of this notion is now tied into political movements. Well, right. where did this start? Well, it started with a fellow named Wilhelm Reich, and he tied together Marx and Freud, but he flipped one of Freud's notions on his head. Freud did not have a, have a happy view of human nature, as we have said. But Reich used uh, the Marxist frame that he picked up to say that the problem was the current sexual codes and family structures. The problem is we're not uh, allowing the sexual impulse to take hold. And if we would just change our expectations, and if only, this is going to sound very familiar to people, if only society would encourage the free sexual expression of all people, including children, well, happiness would be the result. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is Wilhelm Reich's program. Right. 
Uh, this is the real goal of the sexual revolution. And this is, this is probably important because in the mess of progressivism, I think it's um, often not realized what the goal of the sexual revolution is. People think, oh, well, the goal of the sexual revolution is just to say um, you can be gay or you can uh, be even transgender and, and we're going to put that, we're going to move that to our category of accepted lifestyles. Mm-hmm. Um, no, the, the goal of uh, this revolution is that there would no longer be ideas such as forbidden sexual activities and legitimate sexual activities. Um, this is the ideology. And before anyone says, oh, well, that's ridiculous. Obviously, certain activities have to be forbidden. Well, I agree. But the problem is that Every generation who has encouraged this has gone, well, there are certain things that people uh, will just, by their common sense, not seek to do. <laughs> oh, that's not at all. <laughs> right. That's not at all been borne out. Right. And there is no basis for that left. There is no basis to say, well, c- clearly we can all see that this is wrong. No, no, no. As you begin to develop the, uh, the, your self-expression, actualizing the self, uh, so, yeah, self-actualization, I think that's the term. Mm-hmm. Um, well, hey, who are you to stand in the way of that? If this person's self is telling them that this is the case, then who are you to stand in the way? And and that's what we see all around us now, and that's what we see happening. Um, that's exactly right. And you can see the shift. He, he talks about um, the way in which the argument or discussion anymore is not just on seeking to push the boundaries back of kind of things that are acceptable, um, but to abolish the idea altogether that anything would be unacceptable. Right. That is the shift now. And that's why he talks about like modesty and how the discussions on modesty nowadays are almost non-existent because it's almost not the point anymore. And he says, you know, we, you would used to, not all that long ago, hear discussions on whether or not uh, it was modest for a, a woman to wear a skirt of a certain length or to wear right. a bikini uh, at you know, the beach or at the pool or whatever. Um, it, it mostly having to do with women, these conversations were, but uh, this idea of modesty, what is acceptable and what's not. If you try and have those conversations with most people today, you will be probably laughed at and ridiculed if you even propose that there is some sort of standard of, well, if you pose the question, is it modest for a woman to wear a bikini in public? Mm-hmm. Like that question is now met largely with ridicule. And, th- and this is not just like the culture at large. Uh, this is even, I think, ideas that have infiltrated the church. That, And I'm not here saying or, or seeking to condemn any certain person's swim attire. But what I am saying is that the question, this is all, all I'm saying, is posing the question, should a woman wear a bikini in public? That question now is largely seen as how could you even ask such a question? Sure. Like oh, how, how oppressive that is to ask that question. Right. And, and really what you're asking when you ask that question is what should be reserved for private contexts? Yeah. Uh, that, that's what, and, and I, and I will say that I don't think as Christians, we've necessarily framed these questions very well because that is the purpose of modesty. The mm-hmm. purpose of modesty is not to go. And as Christians have done, well, that's because sex is dirty or because, uh, we are covering things that are that are bad. Mm-hmm. No, we we cover ourselves 
with swimsuits because we reserve those uh, parts for marriage. Mm -hmm. And and this is, we may not think about this, but a part of what you're doing when you're at a marriage ceremony is you're saying, yes, this is how we believe sex should be happening between people who are living a committed in a committed relationship, which is ordered by God and under the authority that God has determined. And within that, we say, go, be happy, enjoy yourself, be fruitful, multiply. This is the context for which the book of the Song of Solomon was written. Right. And, and that's why. Uh, because the real question, I mean, okay, where are we right now? Where we are is, um, I don't hear anyone asking this question, but we should. Okay. If modesty is out, do we think people should be naked at beaches? Are, are, is that where we are now? Well, no. I think, that, I think that people should be clothed modestly when they're at beaches because I think people should reserve their nakedness for their husband or their wife. <laughs> that's why, that's why, that is right. why I think we should be clothed appropriately. Right. Not because these are by their nature, uh, dirty things, but because they are reserved. And, and this is, this is where we get in the biblical context, the mystery of marriage that, that literally what God is doing is he's going, look, here's what I'm doing. I want to reserve for a man and his wife. I want them to be the only ones who know what it's like to be with each other. I think that's beautiful for them to know that. And, and, let other people have their own marriages. But God develops mystery mm-hmm. and, and finds it to be good. Uh, we struggle with the gifts that he gives us. I mean, it can be confusing. It can be uh, sure. stressful. You know, look, this is uh, getting, getting married is not an easy thing. Sorting all of this out, even within a marriage, as you alluded to, it's not an easy thing. It's not as if, and, and one conversation that anyone uh, who is getting married soon, look, if you have uh, saved sex for marriage, look, it's not as if everything is just going to be easy and it's all just going to make sense from the start. But under God's guidance, this is the way that this should work. And then it is a good thing. And so that, that's what we're saying. And these are conversations that are not happening. I think if you went to a lot of people and said, why would we not be naked on a beach? I think they would say, mm, I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> I guess because I feel self-conscious about it. Yeah. Well, that's a, a reasonable start. Uh, but believe it or not, there's way better reasons <laughs> than that. Yeah. Yeah, that's because that's really not a good reason. Right. Okay. Yeah, but that person feels fine with it, so shouldn't shouldn't they be allowed to right. express themselves in that way? And that's the idea here, and that's why you know ideas of what is and isn't acceptable as far as modesty goes, like what level of this, but throwing out all standards because there is no basis for them anymore. That's the point to which we've come, which is why you see now even cities in certain places beginning to remove those sort of right. things because they say, well, yeah, if we're not, we would never say you have to wear skirts this long or shorts this long so why would we say you have to wear them at all you know and there now are certain cities women are allowed to walk around uh topless and that's just the natural and logical next step of this kind of ideology you know we can we could still say oh oh i can't believe that or oh that's gross and you hear this even from people who are unbelievers but come from an older age saying oh that's unbelievable i can't believe they would allow that but if if you begin to question them on why that is, if they don't have a 
firm moral grounding rooted in something other than their own feelings, then they really have no no leg to stand on as to why that is. Yeah. Um, so just a couple more points about uh, this issue. Uh, strangely, um, this is a changing nature. This this idea that okay, uh, oppression and and being repressed as far as your goals in the 1800s would have been about class struggle and about um, while while Marx was not popular in his day, his ideas began to be popularized and uh, Marx's ideas have been tried and have been found wanting. But in the 1800s, there were plenty who were saying, yes, uh, repression is about the class struggle, but by 1930, uh, Reich and others define repression as the struggle of the individual to express their sexual desires in their social context. And Mm -hmm. and that is it. Um, While this was in 1930 when it was said, this feels very, very... Uh, powerful today because this is sort of the claim of many today that um, the social desire is no longer tolerance but affirmation support and encouragement that's exactly right and that's what what you're seeing now and that is in keeping with Reich and with his view of Mm -hmm. how this ought to play out with the idea and and this is this this is my real concern here it is not proven it is by no means proven that if someone would say to you, or if a hundred people would say to you, I agree with what you're doing, go ahead and do it. What if you get those a hundred people? What if you get those a thousand people and still there's guilt in your heart about it and still shame and still you feel badly about it? Because that's what I believe, that's what I believe is going on. Look, I, I'm a Christian. I believe that God made this world and he, he still that the Holy Spirit convicts the whole world in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. We know what down is sin, and we know what right is, and we know up, and we know that one day we'll answer for what we do, and that's where that guilt comes from. And so this is the thing. It is not loving, in my view, to say to someone, go and do the thing that will cause you more shame, more regret, more frustration. I can't say that to somebody. Yeah. And, and that's the challenge here. And it will be the challenge, because for the foreseeable future, this looks like what we're going to be dealing with. But the problem is, look, I, I, I can, by my conscience, only tell people to go do things that I think will fulfill them. I, I don't want to lie to someone and say, hey, just go do what you feel like doing and curse them by just saying indiscriminately do whatever your heart tells you. Look, I believe our heart, all of our hearts lie to us at different times. It is me cursing someone to say, go and do whatever you please. I know there will be consequences if we just trust our heart and do whatever we feel like doing. Yeah. I think that's, that's an, I, like, there is no word I can come up with that's better than to say, I think that's a curse on someone to tell them that. And that is the advice people are being sold every day. Yeah. And, and the point that Wilhelm Reich would, would make, building kind of on this Marxist ideology, but, but growing it into something else and, and melding it, meshing it together with the, uh, the idea of the self being supreme, it, and, and especially the psychological self. You come now to this point where if you do as you are suggesting and tell someone, no, that is wrong, you shouldn't do that, that is now akin to oppression. Yep. That is now akin to uh, those evil people who would wield their power over someone else. You are oppressing someone simply by not giving affirmation to them, not mm-hmm. by not celebrating whatever it is they desire to do. 
Now that has become oppression. That has become an attack. We we hear this kind of language around us. Yeah. We we see this that that uh, this is why there are these rises and in safe spaces on right. college campuses and other places so that you don't have to be exposed to even I- certain ideas because now ideas or moral statements become attacks, attacks by oppressors to the quote-unquote oppressed. Mm-hmm. And that is that is clearly has driven us to where we are now. Yep. Yeah, and so uh, identity has been psychologized and anything that is seen to have a negative impact upon somebody's uh, psychological identity, what they perceive as being them uh, can potentially come to be seen as harmful, even as a weapon. And so uh, where we're going in the future then is, uh, well, in the future of what our discussion is going towards, but in the future that we are dealing with right now is how long uh, is freedom of religion and freedom of speech unassailable when People can go, well, your speech is harm. Your speech is violence. Yeah. Uh, The pursuit of truth, anyone who has looked into history will know that the pursuit of truth means everything has to be on the table. And we have to then be able to question everything and Mm -hmm. everything equally. And look, I'm willing to do that. I think we have to be willing to do that. And I I hope that we are as the future goes on. But the the question is, is open right now, whether we're willing to do that. I very much do believe that the because because the groundwork of religion and even um, really what we're going to deal with in our next session, which is um, when you question uh, traditional authorities such as churches, and then also when family structure and authority is pulled away, and uh, when institutions that have been the foundation of cultures are pulled away. What you have is a dangerous situation where people float. People have no anchors and are very irrational actors, I guess is one way to say it, that, that you are in a dangerous position and you will strike out at, at people who are perceived as threats. Um, but truth has to be... Uh, Many of us have been in school t- contexts where it is celebrated. Well, people who question the status quo. But I, I ask right now, th- this has the flavor of a religion. The, what, what expressive individualism has become is a religion in and of itself. And can the status quo then be questioned? Because I think it has to be. Yeah. But uh, when you question it now, it's a dangerous thing to question. It is. It is. We we know that. We see that in the world around us. But I don't know about you, Jackson. I uh, I laugh in the face of danger. <laughs> <laughs> to quote Simba from The Lion King. I'm glad you do. Yeah. Well, it looks like we have used up our time for today uh, looking at this section, uh, talking about sexualizing psychology and politicizing sex. So we'll leave it there. And this has been Empires of the Future. And we will see you in the future.